Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, can we start by me telling you a story about my day? These are my favorite ways of starting the podcast. Of course, please regale me and the listeners. This has genuinely nothing to do with baseball. But this is just me catching up with you, my friend. Yeah. Um, I had a hearing test earlier today. Long story short, I my I'm having all this these popping, this popping in my ears that's causing all this trouble. And so they were giving me a hearing test just to make sure everything is like structurally normal in there. It's nothing serious. But it's the first time I've had a hearing test since like, I don't know, middle school? Like when when's the last time you had a hearing test? I don't know if if I if I did I'm not sure I could even really tell you what would go into a hearing test. Is it just kind of like they stand further and further distances away from your <laughs> ear while yelling and be like can you still hear? No, well, they put headphones on you and they play you sounds and they're like you have to press a button when you hear a sound or they play you a person saying words and you have to repeat the words. Mm, so like gotcha. if you say the correct words you get it right. Never mind the fact that I'm sitting in there the whole time and I had told the person who's doing the test that I work in audio. And so I was like feeling some pressure to get all of the questions right, more or less, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, he works in audio and he couldn't hear that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm going to tell my employer. Um, but I was sitting in there and they do it. It was, in, it was at the doctor's office and they do it in this room that is like professionally soundproofed, you know, like a studio, like a real studio. And it was this like tiny room, maybe like five by five. And the walls were just totally, completely white. But you want to know how messed up my brain is? When I was sitting in there, I was like, dang, there's two chairs in here. Alex and I could do a great yep. pod in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's even could, like a little look-through glass window for a producer to sit over there. So oh, put, my God. Could have put Stevie on that side, you know? Conversely, if this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out, you can now run an ear doctor clinic out of your apartment. Yeah, they're called audiologists. Mm. which I thought was a nifty little name for for someone who just studies ears. That's audiologists. Kind of a, yeah, that's I think what I would have guessed if I had to come up with a with a name. Instead of co-CEO of our LLC, can I be the audiologist right. of chief our audi- LLC? Chief audiologist. Chief audiologist, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Chief content and audiologist. Yes. Well, as we uh as we'll get to later in this episode, the title that you come up with actually uh doesn't matter. It's it's more of a leverage play than anything else. So. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about title inflation, title falsification. We're going to talk about um, two of the worst owners in baseball and the ways in which they are currently dropping the ball. And then we're going to have a conversation with friend of the podcast, Trevor Hildenberger, about the minor league CBA, what it was like actually bargaining it, being in those rooms, who was sitting across from them, what met expectations, what differed from his expectations. Um, some of you will remember that Trevor came on when it was announced that the minor league, the minor leaguers were unionizing. Um, he was involved in the organizing effort. He was also part of the bargaining committee of negotiating the minor league union, the minor league collective bargaining agreement. So, um, it was really cool perspective to hear Trevor talk about being in those rooms and how they figured out what things they were going to prioritize. Uh, but before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Basley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. 
Alex, we're recording this on a Wednesday night, May 3rd. Four days in advance. Five, five, day, five days in advance? Five days in advance. You're traveling mm-hmm. this weekend. We already had the conversation with Trevor from last week. So we were like, you know what? Let's just let's bank this one. Nothing's yeah. gonna nothing's gonna happen. Nothing's gonna happen, right? So everyone listening to this, when I don't know, the, the Mets have traded for Shohei Otani, mm-hmm. just know that we don't know about it yet. <laughs> Do you like how I went positive on that hypothetical? That was that was good. I mean, it's a contrast to the discussion we were having immediately prior to hitting the record button, but it's, you know, we contain multitudes. Keep the faith. Mm-hmm, that's Keep right. Keep the faith. Um, the other thing that could materialize over the next couple of days is that apparently there's a there's an MLB CBA coming. Not a minor league CBA. There's finally a major league CBA coming. 15 months late? <laughs> Uh, Evan Drellick was tweeting about that today, saying that he is badgering anyone and everyone who will listen, trying to get a copy of that CBA, but that that will be available in PDF form at some point, um, at which point you and I will read it <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk about it. I just don't know when that is. They're close. Would you would you say that they are, are moving at the moment um, or not? And are the two sides growing closer <laughs> together? Have you, um, do you sign off on me like going to Etsy or Pinterest and having someone like stitch that onto a piece of fabric or something mm-hmm. for the studio? Yeah. Pay like $300 for like a bespoke boutique embroidery of the Bob Nightingale quote from the the night before we got the actual CBA, no one is moving as the two sides are moving ever so closer. That would be a, a work of art, honestly. Well, yeah. Uh, so you sign off on, on the creation of that. Then. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay, great. Great. It's fun to have a company. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, didn't, they, they never tell you how much of a company is just bits, you know? Well, I don't just, think most companies are like this. Well, <laughs> although, <laughs> actually... <laughs> Kind of a lot of companies are just doing bits, but they're a lot more evil than our bits, you know? Right, yeah. Um, You know, we're, we are recording this in advance, like I said, so we don't... So apologies to the new patrons of this week. We don't have those names. Um, We wanted to talk about just a few topics that have come up in the last couple days. Thankfully, we've, we've been given a little bit of news in the Tipping Pitches universe. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf had a whole thing where he was speaking at a, a global conference for the business of sports. Um, it came out earlier today via Sam Blum of The Athletic that there's a whole situation with the Angels media this year and how the organization is not letting um, reporters speak to coaches without prior approval, without sharing their questions. They can talk to the manager without sharing their questions, but the different coaches throughout the organization have been um, advised not to talk to the media, which is a whole thing. Uh, and then uh, there was a big article from RJ Anderson in this, pa- this past week about um, front office unionization and the potential for that and how there's been growing interest given the increasing demand in working conditions. Actually, really, the working conditions that have always been kind of terrible in baseball front offices, but um, the increasing wave of interest in unionization in this country and also the elimination of a lot of those jobs um, and how much harder they are to get and hold and how poor that pay is in comparison to some of the other places um, in the baseball industry. But Alex, before we talk about any of that stuff, I wanted to quickly uh, talk about the Writers Guild of America strike. Uh, nothing like super in detail, but we talk about labor on this show. We talk about unions all the time. We're talking 
about the MLB. We're joking about the MLB CBA. We're going to be talking about the minor league CBA. But you know, if my my union is currently on strike, I I am not one of those members who is on strike because I'm covered by a collective bargaining agreement with my employer, the Ringer. Um, and the the folks who are striking right now are the television and film writers who are covered by what's called a minimum basic agreement, which is a different kind of um, but a different kind of contract that governs their employment. Whereas in my contract, it says I'm not allowed to strike for the duration of this. So I was out there today with a lot of those people um, in New York City walking the picket line. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this news and have read a little bit about why the strike is happening and just how much the changing landscape of entertainment and media and television and the internet has drastically changed the employment conditions and turned a lot of these writing jobs into gig jobs. Um, or that's what the studios want to want to do at least. And the union is fighting to make the contract more representative of a job that can actually pay all your bills and be steady employment for these folks who are creating all of this entertainment that these media, you know, behemoths, all conglomerates are turning over for billions and billions of dollars of profit every year. You know, every time something like this comes up, and especially when it hits so close to home like this, I have a lot of friends who are covered by the minimum basic agreement. I'm, when you boil everything away, it, I'm always just like shaking my head at how similar all of these stories feel and sound. Like how how different is if we were to really get into the weeds of this and talk about you know Netflix and Warner Brothers and them basically creating a media and entertainment monopoly for scripted television how different scripted and late night television like how different is any of this than any of the you know economic and societal factors that we talk about on the podcast every week it's like remarkable how many of the problems that we're fighting in different sectors of this country and really the world just are all rooted in the exact same problems yeah it's pursuit of profit under the guise of efficiencies sake right it is the same thing that we see play out in major league baseball i mean there there may not be a chat gpt bogeyman that the owners can use to threaten players but they have very similar means of saying look you're replaceable or at least that has been the narrative for decades at this point right until we kind of saw this this sea change so it's all exactly the same the last couple of years have been like christmas day over and over if you appreciate and and root for like worker solidarity and collective action um it, this is spanning industries it's spanning demographics and age groups it's growing uh real, real close to a general strike i don't know guys <laughs> i think we could get it all out of the way in uh, in like a week yeah and, yeah. and reset oh. like kind of reset the narrative you in know? a week that's a good idea we should just all get it out of the way in a week whenever, whenever I just, I s- when when every single worker stops working uh it actually doesn't take too long to, to bring the people accountable to the table a week is long. <laughs> if everybody actually stopped working, it would be like 12 hours, maybe. Um, listen, I'm down. I'm down. Name, time, and place, bro. I'm there. General strike. We're in. Uh, the Tipping, Tipping Pitches podcast is pro-general strike. 
Um, what you said and kind of just what we're talking about reminded me of the tweet that I retweeted and, and saw a couple of days ago um, from Nate Stevenson um, at Ginger Hazing on Twitter. Um, they said, a precedent is being set right now that says that all creatives deserve a viable long-term career. Companies have been exploiting the idea of the quote-unquote dream job to their own benefit, and we don't have to accept that. WGA success is everyone's success. And you could plug in W. You could plug. You could swap out WGA for any union, whether that's minor league baseball, whether that's the prospective front office union that we're about to talk about from from R.J. Anderson's reporting, whether that's Starbucks, Amazon. Honestly, one of the coolest things about being on the picket line today, aside from the fact that there was like hundreds and hundreds of writers um, out there walking like for their livelihoods, was I saw a bunch of people from Amazon Labor Union, saw a bunch of people from Starbucks, saw a bunch of people from the Teamsters, UAW, um, a bunch of like taxi drivers as they were driving by were like honking and rolling their windows down and like yelling messages of solidarity. So it's just a a, a cool and present reminder for me, for us, for the podcast, for anybody who cares about this, who watches scripted television that is created by the Writers Guild of America, East or West, um, that these problems though they have their own specifics in different industries are all kind of rooted in the same thing. And we are all kind of like pulling ourselves and each other in the same direction. And we should be united in that direction. Hell yeah, dude. Workers of the world. You know what to do. (laughs) Okay. Um, Should we talk about RJ's piece? CBS sports.com. RJ Anderson. Longtime baseball reporter. Uh, why baseball's next unionization effort could come from MLB front offices. And then there's a quote in there from an anonymous front office executive. Quote, we're not protected at all. So this is a, a very well written, a very well reported piece, a long piece with a lot of context and a lot of information about baseball front offices. And I'm really glad that somebody wrote this article because it asks a lot of really tough questions um that i think that at some point in the the seemingly near future are going to need to be answered by baseball and they're kind of these questions that have informed a lot of the conversations that we've had on this show over the last few years which is if we are going to pursue quote-unquote efficiency at all costs what is that going to what kind of havoc is that going to wreak across the people who actually make up the baseball industry whether that's players being, you know, winnowing down the minors so that we can just get the top prospects in front of high-speed cameras and learn their spin rates, or whether that's scouts because we just have those same cameras actually replacing the eyeballs of amateur scouts in a lot of um, occasions. You know, I remember talking about that a lot with Evan Drellick when we were talking about winning fixes everything um, because that was, I think, accelerated by the Houston Astros and their front office. Um, and then to me, like the most interesting question is what can the people who are actually affected by these things do about it? And in the case of like minor league baseball, for example, it was to create a union with what felt like what felt like to us overnight from the outside. But obviously there was a lot of legwork that went into that. And in this article, you see kind of some of the challenges that face major league baseball front offices. Um, and that, and when I say front offices, I mean basically everybody who does not work on the baseball field, right? Like 
everyone who, who might be a scout, everyone who might be a data analyst, any of these myriad positions that you could have, trainers, all these things. Um, what kind of protections should those people be looking at acquiring for themselves since we know that baseball can undergo dramatic and radical changes very quickly? I find it curious, the timing of this. Curious, not in a bad way compelling the timing of this in relation to minor league baseball unionizing last year when you see the exploitation of workers no longer being accepted and some of those workers take a leap and are received positively and things go well for them because they actually win their their union and they're actually able to go to the table that is a really powerful thing for people to observe and so Reading an article like this, seeing seeing an article like this, it just reminds you how far away some of those things felt as recently as five years ago and how achievable they feel right now. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And, you know, while the conditions that these front office workers work in are maybe not the same level of, of squalor <laughs> that a lot of minor leaguers were forced to kind of live in, they're still enough to put a deep amount of of stress on your work life your your personal life you're working long hours oftentimes well over 40 hours a week right you're working mornings you're working nights you are getting paid a relative pittance especially if you live in a major metropolitan city which most major league baseball teams are in and there's also very little structure or guarantee when it comes to job growth, which is one of the biggest issues in the in the industry, right? Is that sort of low attrition rate, the lack of turnover that leads, you know, people to really cling on to jobs and makes all of this really, really covetable, right? So it's this really interesting dynamic where that I think plays out very similarly to to in the minor leagues, where you have people saying, This is my lifelong dream is to run a baseball team. And here I am, right? I'll take the shit wages. I'll take the the long hours because I get to say that, you know, I'm a programmer with the New York Yankees. And I think it would be really interesting to see how this sort of thing unfolds because front offices are so unwieldy. It's mentioned in the article kind of there's a little uncertainty over whether it would be one overarching unit or whether it would be done on more of a team-by-team -team basis. Again, there's questions about who does this cover, who is management versus who is a worker. Uh, tricky question. It's really, really tricky question, especially, again, in this age where you have these sort of really made-up titles, right, which are not only a tool to keep other teams from prying, say, a, a talented analyst away from you, but also to really obscure what the role of the person actually is and make it really, really harder to draw that clear line. And like right that right there, what you mentioned is is really one of the like primary driving factors in this from my perspective. Because if you just if everyone's title is slightly different and every organization is doing it slightly different and handing out these kind of phantom promotions to prevent other teams from being able to hire them away. Basically, what you have is a, a an industry and a workforce in which it becomes impossible to like ask questions about your compensation, mm -hmm. like and about your role in the organization in comparison to someone in another organization who might be making more or less than you, and what are the factors that are contributing to why that is? Because 
if I'm doing the exact same work as you, like, like say, see this podcast and I call myself, uh, I call myself a host and you call yourself a content facilitator. Right. Chief, uh, uh, chief audiotrician. Audiologist. 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 (laughs) So, well, I'm actually host and audiologist. You're just content facilitator. So, because I was only host and I was making less than you, I added audiologist. So, you better add another title if you want to actually make more than me. It's not like, there's no just like basic raises and promotion, raise and promotion structure really. I mean, of course there is, right? Like, you could become an assistant GM and then you can become GM, but that those jobs are reserved for 30 people and for a long time those 30 people were just part of an old boys network of former players or former coaches and now they're maybe even more exclusively like a part of a network of people who have MBAs from Harvard or other Ivy League schools and so never mind all of the access issues to even get in, get a foot in the door in baseball in the first place but once you're there you also have to kind of tread water at these lower level positions making in major cities like around ballpark area like $50,000 which is like no you're not making what minor leagues are making but also you are not potentially going to make millions of dollars down the line as a major league baseball player now i know that that is like a dream that they sell minor leaguers to keep their wages down and to keep them them happy and in line and stuff but in a smaller version of that, that's what they're doing to front office workers too. That's what every yeah. every office is doing to every kind of worker. And in baseball, the central tension is that this is a billions, billions and billions and billions of dollar industry with a very select few of people actually profiting the most off of it, which is similar to, you know, what we were talking about with the Writers Guild. But it's just even more concentrated when you have a monopoly exemption and there's literally only 30 companies that are allowed 30 franchises in baseball and the owners are so public and more and more you're seeing the people who are actually creating those profits saying well it doesn't really seem like you could do this without me (laughs) it doesn't really seem like you know Artie Moreno Jerry Reinsdorf Steve Cohen John Fisher, like, it doesn't really seem like you guys are actually doing anything. So, like, it it would function the same with or without you here. So, why am I, like, busting my ass all of the time to just continue to drive the franchise valuation of of this team up? Like, shouldn't I actually have a formal place where I can talk about that? Yeah, I mean, and that's why I am curious to see how the sort of dichotomy plays out between, again, that internal voice that says, I'm a worker and I deserve rights in my workplace. And the other internal voice that I think a lot of people who work in these front offices have, which is, if I work hard enough, I can be the GM one day, right? That, yeah. like, as you were describing. Yeah. Right, exactly. That very same mentality that was used to keep minor leaguers down for so long. Uh, I think the fact that baseball front offices are you know, very traditionally white-collar environments means it's going to be sort of the the public reception of this, I think, might be slightly different from, say, the minor leagues, um, where it's very easy to point to that picture of that sandwich. You know the one I'm talking about and say, this is what they're Burned giving into my kids. brain. Burned into my brain. Exactly. And if you thought the the discourse around AI replacing writers was bad, like, just wait until, you know, it's like, programmers in front offices 
right? And and business directors and HR people, you know. Well, we can leave the HR people out of this. Well, okay. <laughs> um, no, you're right. I mean, God, I'm trying to I'm trying to thread the needle between going on a full rant about like unionization and right. remain also recognizing staying, the guest, <laughs> staying on the on topic, so that we can get to our conversation with Trevor and we can talk about these other things that I mentioned. But like, first of all, sometimes the boat needs to be rocked. You know, sometimes the boat is just in stasis and <laughs> it's going to sink. <laughs> sometimes you need to rock it a little bit to remind people that you're there and that you're a person in the boat. And if it starts to take on water, you're probably going to be the first person who drowns. I'm losing the metaphor a little bit, but I think <laughs> listeners kind of know what I mean. The other thing is, I think we just need to stop competing over exploitation in discourse. We need to stop saying minor leaguers are the number one problem that we need to address in baseball and so we can't talk about the major league cba we can't talk about front office unionization we can't talk about any of these other things until we get this problem fixed because it's just not either or it doesn't have to be either or just because i work in media and and my company unionized doesn't mean that we can't also have starbucks and amazon workers unionizing at the same time it's all it's all possible at the same time that is the beauty of unions that is the beauty of organized labor is that within your workplace you are the thing that creates value and unfortunately in the way that it's structured in capitalism i agree that we should change this however currently as it's constituted that value is either going to you or the person who owns the company and in most cases it's most of it is going to the person who owns the company and so taking a little bit of that back is the the righteous and moral thing to do, obviously. But if you don't take it back, it doesn't mean that it goes to minor leaguers or Starbucks workers or Amazon workers. If you don't act, there's only one group of people that it's going to, and that is management and capital. And so it's like, we a little bit need to, I know that I'm getting out ahead of the discourse that you're mentioning with the front offices, but like, we just kind of need to maybe not entertain some of that bad faith conversation because it's very clear and easy to say if the front office workers actually organize and get paid more money that doesn't mean that minor leaguers get zero dollars now it means that Artie moreno gets slightly less money and i think he's gonna be okay right it's not the front offices unionizing or them signing your favorite star right although that is what it's gonna be framed as right is is that well, which workers do you want us to pay? Because there's only so much cash to go around. Yeah, labor solidarity isn't a zero-sum game. You are not taken away from from your own agency or another organization's agency to support front office workers, for example, right? Like, they deserve it just like the rest of us. Bro, this is like, yeah, because people people will say like... Even even the people in the Astros front office. They make $50,000. That's more than, you know, name job here. It's like, okay, well, if they make $60,000, that doesn't change what that other group of people that you said makes. Yeah. But if they don't make that extra $10,000, then Artie Moreno makes $3 billion and $10,000 that year. It's like, okay, great. What have we <laughs> won here? Like, what? And then the people who say, well, he owns the business and that's his right. Those people are lost. We can leave those people I mean, in the dust. Like, <laughs> we, don't need to, we don't need to win those people over. Um, I recommend people go read Artie's article because it outlines this stuff 
um, in a lot greater detail. And I think really also starkly like starkly defines kind of that thing that we were talking about earlier when I was talking about the WGA, which is that just because these are dream jobs doesn't mean they shouldn't be viable careers that people can live comfortably in. Uh, okay. What do you think Jerry Reinsdorf thinks about dream jobs? Do you think that Jerry Reinsdorf has his dream job? Do you think this is Jerry Reinsdorf's dream job? Just going around to sports business conferences and saying, I don't try too hard. Well, no, I was referring more to creating <laughs> bad baseball teams. Mm, right. It <laughs> sure seems to be his dream job. <laughs> if so, he's doing very well at mm-hmm. it. His year-end review is going swimmingly, if that's the goal. Jerry Reinsdorf, this is a tweet from Blake Schuster, who is the managing editor, assistant managing editor of Bet for the Win, which is part of USA Today. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf was in L.A. Monday speaking at a Milken Institute Global Conference panel. Milken Institute Global Conference panel. For everyone keeping track at home. Called Game Changers, the new business of sports. Um, And then um, Blake goes on to summarize kind of some of the highlights or lowlights, depending on your perspective of Jerry's chat. Once again, so many conferences, so many journals, so many institutes, so many of these. And yet no one will invite us to give our own speech at one of these conference panels, luncheons, institutes, global festivities of baseball. I don't even need to give the speech. I just want someone to come up with like class pass for all the conferences that baseball owners go to. You know, like I just want to know they're happening, right? Class I want pass, someone. Class. I thought class you were talking pass. about masterclass because, bro, I, I oh. got news for you. Masterclass <laughs> probably already has a fucking hour with Jerry Reinsdorf. Yeah, uh-huh. They got everybody in there. I don't know how. Masterclass is a, such a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> no, I just, I just want someone to send around a little calendar, you know? Little six month look at uh at what at what's on the docket, you know? Where's where's Bob Simpson gonna be next month, you know? Who does he own? The Rangers? No, that's not the name of the guy who owns the Rangers. The Rangers is Ray Davis. It's two it's two guys technically. Oh Bob Simpson's a no one. It's Ray <laughs> Davis for me. Ray, Ray Davis or GTFO. <laughs> Bob Simpson, I thought that was made up. <laughs> Um. So, okay, Reinsdorf's speech. How do I even summarize it? Because these speeches are so hard to summarize because it's literally just like, here's every thought that this owner has about the state of baseball. And he has this whole thing about how um, some owners are bad at their jobs. And so they're coming in and they're ruining the, va- ruining the value of players. And he cites an example where it's like, if you spend $42 million on a second baseman who hits 202, well, then that makes it irrational and it makes it hard for me as an owner because then I have to spend $40 million on a second baseman who hits 202. That's not even true. No one is spending $40 million on a second baseman who hits 202. Also, when was the last time you signed a player for that much money, Jerry? Yeah. <laughs> and then he has he goes down on this thing about how he's not even sure how you know other owners made their money because they're so bad at running baseball teams. Um, but But to me, like... One of the most intriguing things in here was about how he kind of let the, the cat, not that the cat is not out of the bag, but he repeatedly is letting many cats out of many bags about how it's more beneficial to not be all in and actually try to win. You know, he couches it in this language of like, 
you know, what your fans want is to be playing meaningful games towards the end of the season. Just this vague, like, if you're in the hunt, then that's what fans want. Which, of course, obscures the fact that, like, the White Sox are not (laughs) in the hunt. And he's not investing in the team to actually give them repeated chances to win. And I'm, like, not even really sure if I agree with what he's saying. I think fans... Oh. Don't want you to maybe accidentally be playing meaningful games in August because you play in the worst division in baseball. I think fans want to feel like you're actively trying to win the championship. The championship. Fans yeah. want to win titles, you know? And they they settle if they had a good fun season with good players that felt like the team was invested in you the same way that you were invested in them. That's okay. Like me with the Mets last year. Tortured, as, tortured though I may be. That was a good season, a great season. The best season of my life, probably, if you leave out like three months in 2015. But that's not what the White Sox are doing. Not even kind of. Well, I also just don't want an owner who has their bar set there, right? I mean, I think it's worth reading the whole quote because it, it, I mean, because if I had to be enraged by it, then the rest of you guys do as well. Um, He says, you do a better Jerry impersonation than me, so I wanted to leave it for you. I don't think I've ever heard him talk. Maybe I have. I don't know. He said, sports is a business of failure. Only one team's going to win every year, but the fact that you finish second or third or fourth doesn't mean you had a bad year. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm with him so far, you know? Everybody gets but, a trophy. Uh-huh. Right. Participation culture at its finest. <laughs> I think the important thing for fans is, while they want you to win championships, they want to know that when you get to the last month of the season, you still have a shot. You're still playing meaningful fans. If you can do, meaningful. you're still playing meaningful games. If you can do that consistently, you'll make your fans happy. How's that working out, Jerry? How are those fans? Are they happy right now? Because you put a product on the field that like isn't dog shit. Is that where the line is right now, dude? This is the thing. We're in this awkward time where there are these. Basically, dinosaur owners like Reinsdorf, who have been around for so long, and they're like, hey, we would really like to run our teams like we did in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, back before fans started having the ability to complain, the, the ability to actually call us on our bullshit. Back before the media had shifted slightly, back before you got a few new owners in actually spending money and being like, wait, isn't making a good team and sending good players a good decision from the business of my team in the long run, even if it doesn't turn me a profit in this fiscal year? And then there's guys like Ryan Zerford who are not interested in doing that and never will be and will never, 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 never entertain the idea of losing money in one season. Never. They would never do that. They would rather let any star walk for nothing to not have to do that. And that is where, obviously, Jerry Reinsdorf never had me, but that's where he loses me on a point like this, where it's like, really, most fans are simple. They want to come to the ballpark. They want to be able to watch their team on TV. They want to have players that they feel connected to because that is a joyful fan experience. It doesn't have to be that your team wins the title every year, even though it would be nice. It's just, like I said, they want to feel like the time and monetary investment is actually worthwhile. And I personally think that's a low bar to clear, but Jerry would like the bar to be even lower than that. Potentially finishing in second, third, or fourth. (laughs) 
yeah, and I not mean, being it, the worst product we possibly can be. So basically, what the bar is the 2023 A's, right? Yes. Like, yes. Hey, Jerry is a fan of a team who has spent the last two decades committed to being not the worst, doing, doing the average amount. <laughs> like, come on, no, but like working I, really hard to do the average amount. You know, it's like exactly. It's like you're at the gym and you're bench pressing. You're benching like 135, but you're doing it behind your back. <laughs> Right. <laughs> with one hand, with one, the opposite foot up in the air while someone is blasting music three feet from, three inches from your face. Yeah. Exactly. While you're eating like a protein bar so you can put the calories back in that you're losing as you work out. Exactly. And it's right. raining. It's just a continuous cycle. Yeah. Um, but first of all, I just want to say the whole meaningful games thing, again, bullshit. Fucking hate that phrase. Hate that phrase. Yes. I am not interested in a game that I lost in the ninth inning and it was seven to five, but we were hanging in there till the end. Uh, but more importantly, <laughs> Alex said W's only <laughs> good losses are, that's not a phrase in my vocabulary. I don't have that phrase. <laughs> I might have to start adding it just so that I can start delineating by all the like ones Joe that are piling Tory. up over here. You sound like George Steinbrenner. <laughs> well, okay. There's no so, such thing as a good loss. No, but I, I it made mean. me it made me think of uh, of Giannis's quotes to the media um, oh, yeah. in in the in the last week, right? Where he was asked basically, you know, I, if if you don't win the championship, like is this season a failure, right? In in not so much in in not so many words, or probably in more words, I don't know. And that he phrase gave, has always tripped me up. Like, is it not so many? Is that yeah. saying that I said less words or right? More, in so, more words yeah. in so many. I don't know. In 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 some different words, in words that were right. not the same but similar. But he basically said, you know, like you can't view it in those binary terms, right? We're trying to go out there and win every year, but like there's also success in failure, right? We're still growing, we're still learning, and and you know, he was that drew the ire of some you know national columnists who. But he kind of lost me with that had, one a little bit. I I kind of got what he was saying at the beginning, but. Also, the season was a failure. <laughs> like, so, but not to litigate Giannis here. I love Giannis. He's like maybe my favorite athlete right now, besides right, Francisco Lindor. But, but, but the the sense that I got that he was saying is, <laughs> he's basically saying, you know, shoot for the moon, you'll land among the stars, right? All right, we're going for the right. whole damn thing. But like, if not, we've still got a good team that's worked together and can come back stronger next year, right? Jerry's like, shoot for the stars to minimize risk to your <laughs> investment portfolio. <laughs> Right, exactly. That's it. Jerry's like, he he feels that question and he's like, well, I can't show you the sheet, the fine, the, the term sheet. I can't show you the books. But if I could, you would not be calling this season yeah, a failure. Yeah, nope, nope. You would not like it one bit. <laughs> um, well, I think Reinsdorf would think that the Bucks season was a failure because they had to pay the luxury tax. That's true. <laughs> it's a failure before they even lost in the playoffs. It's a failure when they didn't get under the luxury tax at the trade deadline. It's the whole I his his brain has just got to be ping ponging back and forth, right? Because because he appreciates teams who spend, but not teams who try and win it all, right? Like, how do you judge any team once they're over the luxury tax? Are they out of your good graces? If they salary dump, are they back in? How does it work? Um, I would like to read you one other quote that really made my. Um... My eyeballs rolled back in my head on this one. Mm-hmm. Jerry I Reins- hope the, I hope it's the one you're, I'm thinking of. Right Jerry now. Reinsdorf, 
quote, in 1981, we were getting $6,000 per game for White Sox games. Now our rights fees are about $700,000 per game. We were getting away with murder with the cable bundle. People were paying for sports who really didn't want the sports. Streaming is coming along, but it doesn't produce the money that the cable bundle produced. And there's basically near panic because where are we going to replace the money in the short term? Can you say the the number again that you said at the beginning real quick? Sorry, of how much they're getting in rights fees? $700,000 per game. So you're telling me that's over $100 million over the course of a season? Because that does not sound right. Wait, this must be how much money they're losing per game, Alex. Yeah, yeah. They're losing $700,000 per game. But Jerry does that out of the goodness of his own heart for the people of South Side of Chicago because he cares so much about them. Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. This, You know what? This pod, this, the rest of this pod and everything we've talked about up to this point, this one goes out to Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Mm-hmm. You're Trailblazer. Gonna, you're going to figure it out. You know? You're going to figure out where to replace that money in the short term. <laughs> I love that he used the phrase short term because yep. sometimes I feel like I, you know, am just bashing my head against the wall repeatedly when I'm talking about these guys only care about short term profit. And then a guy comes out and says, we only care about short term profit. And I'm like, so we were right the whole time. <laughs> Uh, so Alex and I were right. <laughs> the two guys who have basically no credentials who just come on here and yell all the time. We were right. Also, respectfully, what what long term are you looking at, Jerry? <laughs> like I just still, like <laughs> Jerry You might want to start getting Ryan's your house in order. That's your all. age. <laughs> Damn. 87. This man was born in the 30s. Yeah, bro. He was hitting grade school right around the time that they dropped the A-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, that was a cost-effective move. He's like, we were that board was going to really draw for a long time. Yeah. Little Jerry was like, this is how I'm going to run my sports teams. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Artie Moreno now. <laughs> Artie Moreno, self-made man, you know? Mm-hmm. You and I should have thought of selling a billboard company for like $95 million, 1988 or whatever the fuck. It only takes one good idea, right? (laughs) We're still churning through them. You know, we got a few in there. We got a couple good ones. Uh, The Los Angeles Angels, they don't think that media should ask questions. And if they do, they're only allowed to ask them to one man because only one man is equipped to handle such questions. Um, This is from Sam Blum's article in The Athletic about this very thing. The Athletic requested to speak with Angels coach, Angels hitting coach Marcus Thames. However, under a recently revised policy, the Angels allow coaches to speak to the media on a case-by-case basis. They did not permit Thames Thames to speak to The Athletic about Rendon because the potential line of questioning was deemed too negative. I hate when the potential line of questioning is deemed too negative. Mm -hmm. The team said it prefers manager Phil Nevin to handle such questions. There's only one man in this building, who is ready to answer a question about why Anthony Rendon is not slugging very well. And that's manager Phil Nevin. The hitting coach, the hitting coach couldn't possibly be ready for a question. He may as well know negative. Nothing. He may as well not even be employed. <laughs> if he's going to have to answer questions about how the hitters are hitting, what are we going to do? We're going to have to pay for classes for him to learn how to answer questions about how hitters hit. The hitting coach. This is maybe even stupider than the Reinsdorf stuff. I think it's way stupider than the the Reinsdorf stuff because the Reinsdorf because the Reinsdorf stuff is like calcified like twentieth century capitalism brain 
right? Like, like if I got paid handsomely at 87 years old to go around the world and just say winning is good for your bottom line, like I'd do it. In, you know, he's just cashing in on institutional knowledge. But the the Moreno stuff feels like I just thought this, it was a great pivot for us. Okay. <laughs> I we look could, forward to hearing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finish without it. I got I, I'm it's all stored back here now. I got it. The Moreno stuff is like this is is the the thin-skinned 21st century capitalist who acts who has to exist where people can criticize you like online, right? Where you don't control the access to information entirely, right? And and that's I mean, it reminds me of his good buddy and the former president of the United States, right? Who would react similarly to perceived spites from the media or whoever. Um, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if he and Elon were buddy-buddy too, right? Like this is just the worst people you know are cavorting around and pulling access to journalistic outlets. You know, it's just like, they're just soft. That's all it is. Like you seriously can't handle someone asking about why Anthony Rendon hasn't been hitting more, for more power. That's your. That's the negative. You think that's negative, buddy? Yeah, come Artie. on. Artie, come on the pod. <laughs> Got another thing coming. Artie, come on the pod. Um, I was reading Artie Moreno's Wikipedia page earlier today when I saw this, um, just to see like what is what his deal is. You know, mm-hmm. what's what's he up to in his free time? Yeah, because uh, it had been a minute since I'd really read cover to cover on the Artie <laughs> right. on the Artie wiki, and I saw this quote. Speaking of President President Donald Trump, uh. In September 2020, he endorsed Donald Trump for president, saying, quote, it's very necessary to vote for President Trump. Weird phrasing. It's very necessary. <laughs> or what, Artie? That's like not really how people talk about presidential candidates. They're, yeah. They're usually not. They're usually like, I'm so thrilled to vote for President Trump or President Trump is going to lead us to whatever. Um, it's very That's like, it's very, very necessary. necessary. You, you get me this deliverable by Friday. Yeah. That's, that's so weird. Uh, you want to hear my idea? Mm-hmm. We become leadership coaches. Yes, that's a really good grift for us. This I feel like we're both good. like really, you know, we got like a good vibe, like we're positive when we need to be, negative, inflammatory when we need to be. We like, we, could, we could press the right buttons for some of these leaders in the so, baseball so world. So you're thinking specifically baseball oriented leadership. So like one of us goes in and yeah. And meets with Steve Cohen on a weekly basis to say, hey, bud, yeah. how you holding up? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Great. You know, so have you ever seen Billions? Which is no. supposedly based on Steve Cohen, the main character right. of Billions. Yeah. Um, one of the main characters in that show is a leadership coach at the investment firm of the main character who was based around Steve Cohen. So, I, you know, we, Steve's open to the idea based on the fictional show Billions. Right. Well, maybe that's our way in right there. So I'm, I'm fine to start in baseball. I'd like to expand outside of baseball, though. The general luncheon community is really where I'd like to expand to. Like, when, when there's a luncheon, they, like, they do the luncheon. And then after everybody's had their, kind of, their, their finger sandwiches, then they come to us. Right. And we really hype them up. You know? We're like, and you say, hear what you they know, said. The most powerful weapon you have is your voice or something like that. Yeah. We're like, you hear what they said in there? Fuck that. You could be way better than that. Fuck that. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to anything they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're like straight hype men, honestly. Well, if that's what the client needs. Okay. All right. We're B2B. <laughs> uh-huh. We're D- DTC B2B. 
direct to client, business to business. Right. Yep. Come on. Like you it's said a same. couple weeks ago, we're OTT also. We're yeah. OTT of the luncheons. We're going over the top of the luncheons. That's where our clientele is. <laughs> Man, I've had a long day. <laughs> David Zaslov, dude, call me up. I got advice for you. Mm-hmm. I got advice. Striking workers, call me up. Business leadership coach. Tipping Pitches Media. 785-422-5881. Yeah. Zaz, call me. Leadership leadership coach for like union striking union members feels like an op. Like <laughs> des- designed to turn people against the union. <laughs> um back to Artie. <laughs> what is Rob Man for doing? Isn't there like a league-wide policies that this violates? Isn't there any kind of like thing that he can I mean, I know the answer is no, because he worked for these people. But it's like, so you're just, the increasing level of things that Rob is just fine with. I'm just taking note of that. Yeah, I mean, this isn't even the first instance in which this has happened with the Angels. Um, with this very same reporter, in fact. Last month, um, the the very same Sam Bloom tweeted and said that he had been barred from uh, the Angels-owned AM830. Because oh, he yeah. was he was too negative, and so I love that. I love that word, negative. Y- yep. What do you think we're considered? I feel like we're pretty positive guys. I think so too. I just think we're positive about all the wrong things in their eyes. <laughs> That's not what negative means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this sort of action has consequences when it comes to the relationship between yes. media outlets and teams. And and when it comes to the fans who are consumers of this as well, right? You know, I there have been there have been times in the past where you've seen specific players maybe come out and say, "I'm not doing media today or for the foreseeable future, or whatever." And you know, you can have reasonable disagreements about that, but these are individuals of which you and I have of which you and I have. But but at the end of the day, they're individuals making choices for themselves. This is a top down directive that is basically saying, "Here's who you can talk to. Here's who you can't." And we have to pre-screen the questions. Like that's not exercising, you know, your your right as a star to say I'm not feeling it today. That's trying to dictate the narrative that surrounds your team. And when you start doing that, that tells me you're starting to get a little scared of what that narrative is starting to imply. Well, not to mention the fact that, like, do I think the athletic is the reason the Angels are worth whatever they're worth as a franchise? Not directly but media which is a conduit between teams and fans is a huge part in the baseball economy media makes these things bigger media gets more eyeballs on your team which directs you more money so you don't need to say thank you all the time to the media but you certainly don't need to act like they're not like the existence of media in general not any one reporter necessarily is not helping you to become billions and billions of dollars richer because you happen to employ people who are the best in the world at a sport, you know? So I've never understood like the strictly oppositional stance that some teams take on media. Like this was a huge thing with the Oklahoma city thunder in the NBA, um, particularly around their like young core around the turn of the 2010s where they, they were very insular they would stonewall a lot of reporters all the time. They would try to protect Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook from ever speaking to the media. 
if it was not in an extremely controlled environment, very similar to what Sam Blum is describing with the angels. And honestly, from my perspective, you know what that did? That just created a really toxic environment around the Oklahoma City Thunder, a really fun, young, interesting team with guys who had interesting things to say about basketball. And the team, for some reason, decided to make it harder for everybody. And yeah. And we're some of the most talented young stars in the sport at that time, right? Of of which the, the Angels are have their own variety, right? Like the, that you would restrict access to that as well. And also like back to the point of the negative question. The question is too negative. I just think, and I thought a lot about this when Giannis was asked that question because then Mark Cuban weighed in the next day and was talking about how maybe we need to not have press conferences or something. I don't know what the fuck he was talking about. But here's the thing about media and journalism and covering sports is that sometimes you don't have to ask a nice question. Like sometimes, though it is uncomfortable and unfortunate, sometimes a player sucks now. And you have to ask about that because that player is still playing and on the team. Like, I don't think that Angels reporters were really psyched about having to ask about when they were going to cut Albert Pujols, an icon of the sport, one of the greatest players to ever suit up. But they had to do it. They ended up doing it. But is that too negative? Like, where where is the line? Anthony Rendon's having, like, a fine season. But this is a guy who you went out and signed because you thought he was going to be kind of the the Robin to Mike Trout's Batman. And it hasn't worked out that way. And so I don't think it's beyond the pale just to ask a question about why he's not hitting for power the second he left Washington and came to your team. Like, that's not too negative. Too negative would be like, hypothetically speaking, Anthony Rendon got divorced and you came into the press conference. You were like, did your divorce take away your power? (laughs) Like that, maybe you don't ask that question. But, well, now I want to know the answer. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe Maybe that's not the line. Did your childhood trauma affect your ability to hit for power in Los Angeles? It affected mine. <laughs> I um, we just all need to t- we need to chill. It's okay mm-hmm. to sometimes disagree. It's okay when media and players disagree. It's not it doesn't need to be a referendum on media's access to the sport entirely. No, again, this is one of the another one of those fuck around and find out moments where it's like, hey man, if you don't want to give media access to your sport. Go for it. Reap the rewards of that. Yeah. Right? Like, yep. Artie Moreno would love if the Los Angeles Angels played in front of zero people with zero cameras and yeah. zero reporters asking any questions if he made the same amount of money. His life would not mm-hmm. change at all. So um, I don't I don't think he really cares about playing that stupid game and winning that particular <laughs> stupid prize. But I don't know. Until it actually hurts his wallet. We'll see. Uh, okay. Well, we have sufficiently made this podcast very long, uh, but that's okay because these are all good topics and very tipping pitches topics weirdly happening in such a short period of time since we talked last. Um, let's let's kick it over to um, friend of the show, uh, minor league union bargaining superstar Trevor Hildenberg. It comes through the window, it comes through the floor, it comes through the roof and it comes through the door. Okay, we are once again joined by friend of the show, Trevor Hildenberger. Hello, Trevor. It's so nice to see you. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, of course. We're, we're excited to talk to you. 
um, about the minor league bargaining process, which is over. It was news to us that it was really progressing so fast, and then all of a sudden, it was over. So I think that Alex <laughs> and I wanted to start there because we'd love to hear a little bit about what that bargaining process was like for you. First of all, were you involved in the bargaining itself, or were you more of a liaison between the bargaining and the rank and file? Were you just like hearing communications? From your perspective, the last couple months, what has it been like as a minor as a minor league baseball player hearing how this collective bargaining agreement was forming? Right. Sum up the last like six months, please, and maybe like a nice little soundbite um, that we can just like share. <laughs> around, you know, like should be really easy. <laughs> yeah, that's no problem. Nothing's nothing major has happened in the past six months, so it should be a one sentence, two sentence thing. No, I think uh, I think it's been a whirlwind from the beginning of the off season when we were, I mean, the beginning, end of last season, when we were recognized, and then we we knew that the bargaining process would start, but none of us had been through it before. Um, so obviously we looked to, to union leadership to kind of tell us what to expect and how the process would go. And then we had a meeting at the end of November. Um, a lot of minor league players, about 55 or 60, um, met for like a conference in scottsdale and we all met for a weekend and i went and it was it made me feel so professional so grown up i got like a lanyard and you know we had different speakers at different times and i was telling my wife who works in the corporate world i was so proud of myself um but we we spent a lot of time there figuring out what our priorities were and basically what hills we were willing to die on and um as far as salary goes, we try to come up with numbers that we were comfortable with starting with. And so that was a nice, and it was a, a lot about meeting people that in different organizations that I'd never met before, um, different draft classes, different positions. And so it was really nice to, to put some faces to names that I'd heard and seen over Zoom, but never met in person and hear people's different guys' perspective on, on what was important to them. So then moving throughout the offseason, um, bargaining was happening but it was kind of sporadic maybe once a week maybe once every two weeks and as spring training came closer um things ramped up in terms of intensity and uh frequency of the meetings and then especially when minor league camp started in march um i was involved i went to two meetings in person in new york um but i was on zoom for almost every other meeting so you were part of the bargaining committee then yeah, I was I was giving my input whenever I felt strongly enough to to contribute. And then I was also trying to communicate that the what was happening to the rank and file players when the with the Giants. So I was kind of doing both and then um like the last 3 weeks we probably met 3 to 4 times a week. And wow. um some some meetings would be like a half hour and some meetings would be two and a half hours depending on what topics we were exchanging whether it would be a both both sides had something to um, make a counter proposal, or just one side was making a short proposal on something, and it was just um, I never realized how <laughs> draining it would be. Yeah, every single topic, everything was nitpicked and um, discussed nearly to death. And I felt, I when we went to tentative agreements on stuff, I felt so relieved and accomplished. And by the time we reached a final agreement and we sent it out to guys to vote. I was very tired, um, but but proud of the work that we had done. And I thought we reached a, um, a deal that improved 
a lot of different aspects of minor leaguers life. And so I feel very proud about that. I don't think it's a perfect deal. Obviously we have more things we want to get done and we want to push the ball forward and, um, you know, future CBAs. But I think this was a good first step. I think it's really sort of remarkable to kind of look back on like the last six months, right. To like hold the document in your hand and be able to see like, these are the fruits of these hours and hours and hours of of work that we've put in. And I imagine that that's especially kind of gratifying, again, as you mentioned, like kind of never having been through this process before. I'm kind of curious what that was sort of like for you and some of the other guys in there who had never been in this position of like having their first bargaining meeting. Um, can you sort of walk through that of like how you were getting up to speed on on what the negotiation process is like? I mean, were you taking the MLB CBA and saying, Hey, let's, let's start from here. And then we'll like mark it up and go from there. Like. Yeah, there were a lot of aspects. There were a lot of aspects that we did um, take language from the MLB CBA and just kind of, I think the joint drug agreement um, was one of those aspects. Like this works for those players. Why shouldn't it work for us? This this should be a no brainer. And it was, Um, and like um, second opinion on medicals and grievance policies and discipline and stuff like that, where we did take a lot of the language from the MLB CBA and maybe they were minor tweaks by either side, but I think for the most part, it's pretty similar. Um, and we had lawyers who would do like read through it very carefully and say, Oh, actually this language is, um, we should strike this language or we should add this language. And I wasn't, educated enough in this aspect in bargaining to even understand what they were talking about some of the time. Um, but I think, I think those efforts are magnified and really appreciated by everyone who was in that room or everyone who was on the zoom calls. We knew how important it was to have an experience like Bruce Meyer, who was the um, lead negotiator for us, uh, Matt Nassbaum. Um, there was just so many people that, that I don't think we get to the deal that we got to without, I think if we had done it, you know, players only and weren't absorbed into the MLBPA and like didn't have those resources and those people, we reach a very different looking deal. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the vibe of both like the negotiate negotiation portions of bargaining looked like versus like the caucuses when you guys kind of met afterwards? Because I I'll speak for myself when I first went through a bargaining process for a CBA. I don't think I was ready for like the silent feeling like anxiety of when like the first bargaining section goes and you're like reading proposals back and forth and no one is really supposed to talk except the negotiators. And then you just kind of stay silent and keep a straight face. So from your perspective, like what was that like for you being in those rooms with kind of like some super high powered people on the other side from Major League Baseball? And I guess who were those people in in your case? Sure. Yeah, I think... um... I was extremely nervous. My first, yeah. the first time I flew to New York and we sat down across the table. You're literally on either side of this long ass table. And I just had a coffee and a notebook and printed handouts of the proposals we were making that day. And then when MLB would make proposals, they'd hand out, you know, pieces of paper and they'd look through them, but you'd also want to, I didn't know what, like, <laughs> like you said, you sit there and be silent. And I was like, okay, let me practice my nastiest looks. Let me practice my most <laughs> stern, stoic faces. Yeah. Have no reaction to these people. Or do I want to look permanently Tucker Carlson face and just like very 
furrowed confused brow. and angry. Yeah. yeah, like what? Why? Like, why are you? Really? Someone, like, someone has to carry that. What are you now, saying? Right? Like, are you? Yeah. <laughs> and it was very nerve wracking. I think I had my Apple Apple Watch on. I think my heart rate was like a hundred or one hundred and ten. Yeah, like man. That first very first meeting, and I did, I wasn't gonna talk. I had there was no chance that I was saying anything. <laughs> Um, but just sitting there taking notes, I was nervous. And then I think the post meetings debrief was a lot more relaxed, a lot more loose. People always commented on how somebody spoke and or the body language that they displayed when in the room. I think people paid attention a lot, a lot more to these things um, than I ever anticipated. So let's see, on MLB side, it was Dan Halem. Um, who was the lead negotiator? A guy named Pat, who's a lawyer. Um, and a couple of people that I don't remember their names off the top of my head, but it was the same group of six people, I think, every single meeting. And then um, Dick Monfort was the only owner that that was really um, present. I think he was mostly on Zoom. And um, he was, because he's the head of the labor committee for the owners. And I think that he right. um, That's took part the most of, like, interest the, in this. Yeah, the outline of that role right yeah no other owner i don't think any other owner um even zoomed in i heard that they were scared of your tucker carlson face like once that <laughs> spread around nobody they wanted to did join not, for, their, for after they that. did not want to sit across from me that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> how when you were kind of in these rooms having these conversations obviously again you're having to make some really tough choices about you know what you are bargaining over and what really you want to sort of throw your weight behind. Um, and I'm yeah. just kind of curious what those conversations were like as you and the other players had to really come to consensus on this is what we want to prioritize in the CBA. This is something that's, you know, maybe we can um, forego until the next round of bargaining. How did you kind of make those decisions as a, as a group? Um, yeah, it was a very interesting process because I think there are different groups of minor leaguers, whether it be guys who just got drafted, guys who have played in the minor leagues and are close to the big leagues, and then guys like me who have played a long time, had big league time, or free agents at one point or another and are making more than the minor league minimum. And maybe our priorities differ a little bit about what's important. I think guys who had just got drafted, salary was number one. Clearly, evidently, they voiced it it's obvious we all knew that the salary is unacceptable and we need to raise that floor. Um, other people, the reserve clause, like how many years were on the uniform player contract right out of the gate, seven years was just too long. It was unacceptable. They really wanted to, to knock a year off that or knock two years off that other guys really wanted better benefits. Um, better housing was really important to, to keep what we had the progress we had made in 2021, I think that mm -hmm. was the first year that they had housing. And to keep that was very important. I think it was discussed briefly about whether we wanted to keep housing or just ask for a higher salary and have housing, us figure out the housing on our own, like we were, you know, before 2021. And what was interesting for me was how, say we had a Zoom call of 65 minor leaguers, and then I would go back to the guys that I was at the spring training complex with, with the giants and then kind of portray the picture of that discussion or the last zoom meeting. And I didn't want it to just become an echo chamber for me. You know, I could definitely 
portray it in a really positive light and then everyone be really encouraged or mm-hmm. I could portray it in a very negative light and then they'd all be discouraged and upset and angry. But I just wanted to paint it in a true picture and get people's real reactions. Like say, listen, if you disagree with this, tell me, that's fine. That's great. Let's talk about it right here, right now, and then have a uniform front moving forward. But if we didn't have tough discussions about what your priorities are, and if they differ from what we're arguing for or bargaining for, then you need to let us know because your opinion matters just as much as mine or just as much as the next guy. And so if this isn't working for you, speak up. Yeah. And, and that was, um, I felt very adult. I don't know if I'd be able to do that when I was 23. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's so challenging because like the way that this usually works is that the people who are most involved go back and they relay it to the rank and file. And oftentimes, well, I I don't want to speak for everybody, but like oftentimes the rank and file will say, that sounds good. It sounds like you guys are doing good work. It sounds like you guys are working really hard. I trust you guys. And like for the people who are involved in the bargaining, it's like, I don't know what to do with that. Like then I have to look internally and think like, what do I think is right? And then Alex, you, you use this word consensus. Like that's so important that that word is like so sacred in union bargaining and negotiation is consensus among, you know, your bargaining team about what you actually want to push for and what you're willing to sort of um, give a little bit on to get more in this other place. And so I just, number one, I admire like that you guys had such a gigantic unit and the fact that you guys had such an imbalanced, you know, industry to begin with. And number two, I'm just like, I don't even know how you would begin to prioritize those things. So like what, what methods did you put in place? Like, whether that was like at the Arizona meeting or whatnot to sort of like get the ball rolling on where you wanted to start. I mean, I know there were some things that were like super obvious, like salary and benefits and that sort of thing. But what about some of the more like fringier things? Were there like player surveys? Like, was it, did it just come naturally from conversations or what? No, exactly. It was player surveys. I think early, early in the process last year, before we were even recognized as a union, um, we would ask guys, you know, if you could change, five things about the minor leagues, what would they be in order from most important to least important? Or give me your top three things that you would change. And that kind of gave us a, an idea of where to start. And then that meeting or that weekend in, in Arizona was um, pretty crucial in terms of guys really expressing and spelling out. Because we, we would go out into, what do they call them? Breakout groups, you know? Yeah. And five or six guys different ages, different teams, different experience levels and say, this is what's important to me. This is the most important thing to me. And if we disagreed, then it was just like, you look each other in the eye and say, I respect it, but I don't agree. I don't think that that's a priority. (laughs) Um, You know, getting, getting all your supplements covered in the off season is great, but I really don't think we should, you know, hold up a deal over creatine. And I think that was just an example. I don't think that really happened, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was like you said, consensus over such a large group over 5,000 people um, was tough. And yeah, I don't, I mean, still don't know if we ever got to like a full consensus about how we did, but mm-hmm. I think overwhelmingly positive um, feedback from, from the guys, especially now since they've gotten their first paycheck. Um, that's been affected by the CBA. Double um, A AA and triple A guys getting their own rooms on the road. Huge W. Everyone's yeah. psyched about that because that's like real impact you can feel 
Whereas like, oh, now we get dental. People might not use that and or think that that's a big deal. But when you take a ground ball off the teeth on a high school field in the off season, because that's where you practice and the rest of your face is insured, but not your teeth, uh, it's frustrating and it's really upsetting. And you don't, until you're in that position, you don't realize how important that stuff is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned the the housing policy, uh, which yeah. is something that I was, I kind of wanted to explore a bit more because th- this obviously, you know, was something that had kind of been uh, advocates for minor leaguers had been uh, working on kind of trying to build, you know, work out this policy with Major League Baseball um, a little over a year ago. MLB came out and said, hey, we're, you know, we have this plan. We're going to provide you with this form of housing. and in in my eye, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like a bit of a an organizing kind of catalyst um, because it was sort of the first real coalesced movement that said, "Hey, we have this demand from minor leaguers to Major League Baseball, and and this is what we're what we're looking for, right? And and maybe we want the opportunity to not just take what you're giving us, but actually have a say in negotiating this. So I'm wondering just kind of how important that experience was for sort of building the will to maybe make this fight uh, a little bit bigger in the long run? Oh, man. I mean, it can't be overstated. That point was massive because it was the first time that players had used collective action, right? The team in Brooklyn wore those wristbands, um, those fair ball wristbands. And I think that that caught on to the major leagues. I think at some point in September, I remember Andrew McCutcheon and a couple of the guys were wearing fair ball. And then there was that athletic article from Britt Rioli. And I want to say an ESPN article from June Lee, but that public pressure applied with players showing their, I don't know, I don't want to say disdain, but their, their frustration with housing policies and conditions. And then like a concrete change happened. We asked for it. We well, we didn't ask for it. We demanded it. There was public pressure applied, and then MLB changed the policy, and housing was covered. And it was just kind of like, wow, you can see, you see that what happened. That that was organic. That came straight from us. And the role advocates for minor leaguers played was massive because they coordinated that and sent out the wristbands and made the wristbands, and people just felt like they had support from outside the clubhouse that they had real support from fans. Um, and that was huge in the organizing effort moving forward. Cause I think like, look, that was just one thing. Imagine if we all came together, that was one team in one place. Imagine if we all came together and demanded better salaries. Don't you guys think that that would be good <laughs> moving forward? Um, so yeah, the, the housing policy was huge. And the fact that that stayed um, is big time. And, you know, we negotiated over how far away from the, field it has to be and transportation and um how many guys to a room and air conditioning and then wives policy is kind of a lot of different topics go into that that housing policy but it was um it was important to us that we we kept that in there trevor what do you think was the most contentious thing across the table like there's always something that once you boil everything down and once you get the joint drug agreement and you get the you know, second opinion stuff, like the stuff that you're taking from the MLB CBA that kind of seems reasonable to both sides. Like after you kind of get tentative agreements on all of that stuff, you really get down to like the one or two things that the other side doesn't want and the one or two things that you do want. 
And what, so in the, in this case, what do you think that was? Was it just salary numbers? Was it like other things that you had been trying to get in there that were completely new to the idea of a baseball CBA? Or in your case, what, what was the most contentious? Domestic reserve list. Yeah. Domestic reserve list was the most um, contentious and um, yeah, most important and most contentious topic. Salary is tied to it, right? Yeah. Um, I think we all saw the economic package as a whole and um, we knew that the number of jobs was going to be tied to everything else. What is the, I mean, to the extent that you can really speak about it, what is the kind of framing um, uh, from from their end on why this is sort of an important part of this economic package? Is it really just, hey, salaries are going up, we have to, we got to cut jobs? It, you know, is there kind of a, a, is it part of the grander sort of one baseball scheme of of really reining in this unwieldy minor league system? Or or was it really just like an like an economic question for them? Um I think obviously economics played a part. I don't I can't speak to like the exact reason that they, you know, came up with the figures that they came up with. But I know that um at one point they talked about how it was a competitive advantage for some teams to have so many players in let's say the complex league if some teams had two teams in the complex league um that they could take basically they were basically you know gambling on these players have a ton of young cheap players and if one of them makes it big then it then it pays off and if teams can't afford to their argument was you know if some teams can't afford to have the same number of players that that's a competitive advantage for teams with bigger, um, bigger markets, bigger payrolls, and um, they could have more players. And therefore, if some of those make it big, that that's their advantage. I, uh, that's all I got to say. That's, um, I don't, I don't Very know. Diplomatic. The, I don't know if the numbers are mathing for me personally there, whether or not some teams can or can't afford to have another couple players on the domestic reserve list, but that's just my thoughts. Um, I, so, Zooming out a little bit, like less specifically to the domestic reserve, less specific to the housing policy, the salaries or anything like that. There are always these things, especially in a first collective bargaining agreement, where there's just like philosophical differences. Like a team thinks it should be allowed to limit the roster size because that is just employers' rights or whatever. That is just management rights. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you find yourselves like running into that argument quite often? And what were like some of your strategies for kind of making them see negotiation logic in terms of why this is good for the game, some of these things that you're trying to push for. Why this is good for like the long-term health and sustainability of the game to have a reasonable minor league CBA that people can actually afford to give the game a shot. Yeah, I think that's a great question because you know we did try to appeal to the fact like, that what is good for player development, what is good for minor leaguers, is good for player development, which is good for the teams, which is good for the game. Right? We want Everyone wants to see young, exciting, well-rounded players reach reach the big leagues and have success. And if the minor league is, is, as a whole, a little bit better baseball because people are eating better, sleeping better, um, in the off-season they can afford to train and not work an off-season job, so they actually make reasonable gains in the off-season and then come back as a better player the next, the following spring training, this is all positive. And I don't, I don't understand why there would be 
any arguments against some of the the no brainer stuff, but yeah, we did have to appeal to to that side of it quite often. Um, sorry, I forget the exact point of the question. <laughs> yeah, just about like it can seem like from from like labor's perspective, like those things right. in terms of make like healthy workforce equals healthy company, right? And yeah. how do we make the workforce healthy enough? While you guys are saying philosophically you're opposed to some of these things, so in the case of baseball, it's like that plays out just plays out differently than a lot of workplaces. So like the philosophical differences in terms of like being able to limit the roster size and that sort of thing. But you you kind of hit on that. You answered on kind of what I was talking about. Yeah, I think, and I think that they agreed on a lot of aspects of like, okay, yeah, like we want players to do well. Obviously, that's the goal. Um, one aspect was that was tough. Um, uphill sledding was um, termination pay. We wanted to give guys just a little bit of coverage so that when they got released in the middle of the season and then they got dropped off back home, you know, they were their housing was provided by the team. Obviously, their paychecks were provided by the team. And then when that's done, they're kind of out of everything immediately and have to go home and find a place to stay. And that maybe not every player has a place to stay when they get back home. So we wanted to give them. Um, a little bit of runway so that they could find a comfortable place to stay and, and they would land on their feet, you know, going forward and um, before they found either another team to play for or whatever came next in their lives. And I think that was a, we thought that that was what's best for the players and that view wasn't always shared. Obviously this CBA is a starting point. This is really step one. I, I it feels like the, the real work is going to come, uh, in the coming years, right, as this CBA really sort of gets yeah. down and calcified. Um, I'm curious what, from your perspective, are some of the biggest challenges that sort of still remain for, for minor leaguers, for the, for the union, um, you know, obviously without, without tipping your hand to the other, the other side too much, um, you know, are there, are there some topics where, as you, you said, know, Rob you know, Manfred is a dedicated listener, dedicated to podcast, listener. so don't yes. give him any free ideas. <laughs> I, I guarantee that he pays someone to listen to podcasts like this. <laughs> That's a horrifying thought. Just a, just anyway, a genuinely horrifying thought. What's up? What's up to that? Intern? You should check your Shouts check out. your one star reviews if you guys have any one star reviews on Spotify <laughs> and Apple Podcasts. Oh, Rob! What, Rob would at least respect us enough to give us two stars. Come on, there's there's intellectual honesty going on in this podcast. Come on. He, re- he respects business people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I think you're right the important work is still ahead of us. Um, over the next five years, we're going to have to pay close attention to what is working in the CBA and what's not working for players and their families. And then I think it's also important to remember that we need to, because the turnover is so great in the minor leagues that a lot of the players that were around for this, this round of bargaining are going to be former players when they, the next CBA comes around or major leaguers or if they are still around, that they are going to be in a very different place in their career. So I think to continue to educate new players that come in, every new draft class or new free agent signings, um, kids that are coming in, international signs, to educate them on what a union does, why it's important to be an informed and engaged member of the union, what it offers you, and what it was like before, and what why we're continuing to fight for better circumstances. I think, um, you know, if guys are making 30 grand a year and their housing's covered and they get paid for spring training now 
and the padim is better and the benefits are better. Some of them, you know, might, might not be as motivated as the guys who were desperate over the past two years to organize and fight for better conditions. So it's about keeping guys engaged and motivated and, you know, continuing to push the envelope forward. I think it's, um, it's something that I'm, I don't want to say excited for, but like, I hope to be part of that continuing to educate the next player because I've played it. I was drafted in a round that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And I played at every level of the minor leagues, even ones that don't exist anymore. And I want to say that I think that I can relate to a lot of different players. I don't, obviously I'm not from Venezuela or the Dominican, but I've played with a lot of young players who send money back home. And I think, um, I think it's important. What I'm hearing is that baseball is actually the perfect path to radicalizing the youth of America. <laughs> That's, That's right. really the little league to union grunt pipeline. <laughs> You really read through the lines there. You read between the lines. That's exactly what I was saying. I mean, it's so true because like, you will always have the conditions the day before the CBA went into effect compared to the day after it went into effect. And you will always have that as an educational tool, not only for what a union can do in baseball, but for what a union can do in literally any workplace. Like I, I have that too with like what the conditions were like before we started negotiating the union Uh, the collective bargaining agreement at the ringer and what it was like afterwards and just how much different it is. And it's really hard to keep people engaged once you have a CBA. But I know that especially being part of MLBPA, like that is such an institutionalized form of um, union power, honestly, like that is always like the spotlight on it is renewed constantly. Like the fact that we're even able to do a show about labor issues in baseball when there's two CBAs and neither of those things are like actively being negotiated is because these things play out all of the time in small ways and big ways in contracts, in cutting players, in grievances, in rule enforcement, in statements from owners in statements from commissioners. And so like, there's always going to be a new opportunity for players to learn about how this is going to affect them. And maybe they're not going to be as engaged as they were for like the last three months negotiating the CBA because in many ways, yeah. this is like the genesis of what is going to be the 10, 20 years to come in, in minor league baseball CBA fights. But I think that just observing from the outside, it seems like the like practical realism of improving people's lives in this, in this collective bargaining agreement and the policies that are going into effect are just going to have like unbelievable staying power. So it's, it's, I, I commend you guys on getting it done so quickly and like getting a lot of stuff that was priorities for you guys and just being a part of it, the whole process, just because I, I can't even fathom the different, you know, like, like powers at play in trying to stop something from like this from going into effect. Yeah, it is, it is crazy to kind of look back not only in the past three months, but when I was drafted in 2014 and like, 2015 my first spring training and just being petrified to kind of step out of line i mean there it could be real repercussions for someone turning the spotlight on our conditions and then five years later it was people tweeting out the shittiest food you've ever seen (laughs) and be like i'm not eating this you know piece of american cheese on untoasted bread with a piece of romaine lettuce and that's it that that's unacceptable. Let's change this. That whole attitude and culture shift is like kind of unfathomable for me. And the fact that we're in this place now where guys are getting a better salary, guys are getting better benefits, 
And to say that I was part of that is like an extremely proud thing for me to say. And I hope that um, if anybody remembers me at all from my playing career, it's about, <laughs> it's about what um, the role that I played in this movement rather than, you know, my, my five and a half ERA in the big leagues. Trevor, thank you so much for doing this. We have a blast talking with you always. Um, so thanks for coming on. Yeah, happy to do it. Any other baseball or pop culture related thoughts that you want to get off your chest with the with the uh, megaphone that is tipping pitches? Um, I'm really sad about the Oakland A's. I grew up going to Giants and A's games. Um, my brother-in-law is a huge A's fan and his son is a, you know, has been going to A's games. He's five years old now. Um, I remember going to A's games with my dad and listening to like a little hand radio so that we could like listen to the announcers and watch the game at the same time. Uh, and then I remember pitching in high school, we had a high school tournament at the Oakland Coliseum and that being the first ever big league field that I was on. And then obviously got to pitch on, I remember taking a little piece of grass and a little piece of infield dirt <laughs> and like putting in a little sandwich baggie in case I never got back onto a big league field. So, um, I have some special memories about that place. It's embarrassing that they're not going to be in Oakland anymore. I really feel for Oakland sports fans with the Warriors, the Raiders, and the A's leaving. Um, that makes me sad. I did listen to a Ringer F1 podcast that I think you edited. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I sound designed that one. Scored it. Yeah, about Logan Sargent, and that was nice. <laughs> um, I don't think Taylor Swift and Fernando Alonso are actually dating, but it's fun to... This is the important part. We got all yep. of that minor league baseball chat out of the way. Now we yeah, can talk yeah. about Taylor Swift. Done with. <laughs> can we please shift to F1? If Fernando Alonso is dating Taylor Swift, he's winning the driver's championship this year. <laughs> I, saw, I saw ESPN t- tweet out some graphic where it's like, you know, Fernando Alonso, like number of championships, 22, like how he feels about his old teams. We are never getting back together. And I'm like, you are ESPN. What is happening right now? <laughs> Stooping to new levels. We are living uh, in a world where, about Fernando Alonso. where TikTok content has just completely just leveled the conversation. It's like, if it's popular on TikTok, it's popular everywhere because everybody is on TikTok yeah. consuming it. And so if people are talking about it on TikTok, guess what? ESPN is going to be tweeting that shit out. Right. And like, how can I how can I digest this in 10 seconds? Because if it takes longer than 10 seconds to learn about, I don't care. Trevor, are you a Swifty? Or are you just a big F1 fan? And so you came to it. No, way? I'm just a, I'm just a big F1 fan. And my wife really likes Taylor Swift. So like I've listened to her music, obviously. Yeah. And I like some of her songs, but the fact that that world is colliding with Fernando Alonso, <laughs> who's like reputation is just as leave teams and teammates in shambles. Yeah. He's totally welcomed his villain persona. And he just stepped right into that and accepts it a hundred percent. So he's a really fun character and he's like 45 years old. Still yeah, racing. He doesn't have he was the, gonna like retire like six years ago. And then was like, never, he did. Never mind. He retired right, yeah. for two years. Right. And then exactly. came back. He was like, nah, I'm fucking bored. Like let's race. <laughs> yeah. That's relatable. I can't wait for that era of our pod, Alex, where we're just like, I'm burnt out. We're retiring from the pod. And then two years back, right. we come back like the undertaker and we're mm-hmm. just like, it's time to talk about labor again. <laughs> Exactly. We're in our Brady era. When MLB expands to Nashville and Montreal or wherever it's going to be, I am really looking forward to that podcast. <laughs> Don't worry. We're prepared. We are, we are amply prepared for that. I'm sure.
The time uh, is coming. Trevor, thank you so much. It's it's always great talking to you, and we really appreciate the insight into all of this stuff, including um, Taylor Swift and Fernando Alonso. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for having me on, giving me the platform to speak a little bit, and then you know, covering the the in depth stuff of negotiations that I think is important. Alex, you know, um, at the end of that conversation, you remember we did this a little while ago, so I don't know if you actually remember this. At the end of that conversation, Trevor said that he really, what he really wanted to talk about was the rumors that Taylor Swift was d- dating Fernando Alonso. Well, in the time that it took uh, for us to publish uh, uh, this pod, uh, 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 now there's there's bigger rumors no, about Taylor Swift dating a no, different there aren't. No, there aren't. messy man, problematic man who's successful in his own right. No, there aren't. And that's Maddie Healy. I've already had some pe- I've already had a friend text me and say he's willing to come on this pod to talk about that exact story. <laughs> so it's the rumors are swirling. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? This line of questioning is frankly far too negative for <laughs> my tastes. And so I'm gonna have to defer. I could could on not one. agree more. If Taylor Swift wanted to date somebody who repeatedly has quasi meltdowns in front of thousands of people. She should have just picked someone on the New York Mets. Like that would have made my life way better, way easier. All my interests concentrated in one place. I don't want to learn about the 1975. I don't. I don't know any of their songs. Somehow, I don't know the songs. I don't want to have to learn the songs. Just hell yeah. Don't make me learn the songs. <laughs> I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're fine. It's just completely and totally missed me. Sometimes you need stuff like that. I think this is a perfect opportunity to take advantage of that and never listen to any of their songs. Yeah, just let it pass you by, man. It's a glorious feeling. It's a glorious feeling to like wake up and scroll through the timeline and be like, something's trending that I've actively chosen not to care about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, things Um, are going to feel a little lighter today. Two things of housekeeping before we uh, wrap this pot up. Number one, new t-shirts. They say, sell the team. They don't say what team, but you could probably guess. Based on the color scheme of the shirts, they're green and they're yellow and they're white. And they say sell the team in cursive font. You know, use your head. Uh, the proceeds of those shirts <laughs> support uh, increasing access to baseball in the East Bay, Oakland. <laughs> sell the team. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Alex and I have been throwing around the idea of doing like a meetup community kind of event at a minor league baseball game, the Brooklyn Cyclones, this summer. Um, We've settled on a date. That's July 28th, 2023. The Cyclones are playing at home against the Wilmington Blue Rocks. They play in Brooklyn and Coney Island, in case you're not familiar. Uh, That's when we're going to be doing the uh, meetup. So the ticket situation is interesting because we're still trying to gauge interest on uh, how many people are going to be coming and and what will be the method for getting those tickets. And so what we have done at this point, number one, don't but go and buy your own ticket yet because there's going to be like a situation where either we buy the tickets ahead of time or there's like a special link so that you can be, we can all be in the same section. Um, what we have done right now is we've created a Google form. So if you're interested in that, that link is in the description. It's just a question about whether you would want to come and about how many tickets you would need, including yourself so that we can ballpark it a little bit and then go back to the folks at the Brooklyn Cyclones and tell them, here's how many tickets we think we're going to need. 
You don't have to be like super firmly committed to that yet. If you think you're going to be able to make it and you want to fill that out and say how many tickets and then you have to back out for whatever reason, that's more than okay. You're not actually buying a ticket by filling out this form. It's just for our informational purposes only. So if this, if you're in the New York City area and this is something that is interesting to you, there's going to be a bunch of people there who we're really excited to meet in person because we know them from online. And this thing that we all care about is a thing that is primarily enjoyed in person, in my personal opinion. So I'm really excited about it. I love seeing Brooklyn Cyclones games. Um, it's it's one of the coolest places to go see a baseball game, you know, not just in New York City, but in the world. Uh, and yeah, Alex, am I leaving anything out? No, I think that's everything, Bobby. We've We've taken enough of our lovely listeners' time already. Go buy a shirt. Tell the team. Go fill out the Google form. Come watch baseball with us. That's pretty much it. Um, thank everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!